Good morning, everyone. Uh, just got back at 1 o'clock in the morning. The staff and I, most of the staff and I, were at a conference in New Orleans, Louisiana. Has anyone ever been to New Orleans? Anyone, been, anyone ever been there? Not a whole lot. Anyone ever had uh, the beignets at Cafe Du Monde there? Anyone? Can you, uh, I, don't, I don't know about that. Let's not go crazy, but, but it's like a fried dough with tons of powdered sugar on top. And oh, I'm convinced Jesus served it at the Last Supper with his disciples. And that is why they're willing to die for him, because once you've had one, that was just like, so we'll have it next week for communion, I think, some beignets, so don't wear a black shirt, because that powdered sugar is all over, but delicious, so one in the morning. Uh, we are continuing our series, this is the second week of How to Hug a Vampire, trying to figure out how do we love people who are in our lives that just suck the life right out of us. And what we said, said last week, it feels like it's almost a universal experience for each of us. We have somebody in our life that when we're with them for long enough, it feels like they just drain us of energy. We're exhausted. And the thing about the vampires in our life is they're kind of a special category. It's not like they're our enemies. Like, and we know Jesus tells us very specifically what we're supposed to do with our enemies. Uh, but they're kind of usually people that... Sometimes it's down deep, but we really do love them. Like they're, they're our family members. Maybe it's a, an aunt or maybe it's your mother-in-law. They're, they're co-workers that they don't look like they're going to quit their job when you're not either, so you're stuck together. How do we love them well in the manner of Jesus? That becomes our task. What do you do with people who drain you, who have their own dysfunctions that you seem to get entwined with every once in a while? How do we still love them? Because if we're following after Jesus, we've got to figure this out. This is important to us in terms of following after Jesus. And so Paul, we, here's sort of the backdrop of where we've been. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Paul tells us that love must be sincere. Nobody likes fake love. Nobody likes that insincerity. And so what that means is even with people in our life that are kind of at times difficult to love, the vampires, we just have to love them sincerely. And how are we going to do that? Not, not just tolerate them, not just put up with them, but how do we love them? And then I like how Paul kind of wraps it up in verse 18. He says... If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So just as much as it depends on you, if possible, live at peace with everyone. And so then we went on last week to talk about these two points. One, I think it would be helpful to us. How do, you know, how do we kind of sincerely love the vampires around us? I think, number one, if you'll remember that they have not always been vampires, that would be helpful to you. Like something, and this way it is for even us. Like we kind of, we move into our own dysfunctions, but we weren't born with those necessarily. Something happened, some tragedy, some crisis, some life event that kind of skewed our perspective of things or changed us in profound ways. And for the vampires in your life, if you will remember that they've not always been a vampire and they have a story. And if you can hear that story, you might have greater empathy and compassion for who they are. And I think we've all had that experience, haven't we, where there's somebody that we kind of just, just kind of initially knew and we kind of got on our nerves or they rubbed us the wrong way. We really didn't kind of like them. And then somewhere along the way, you heard their story and it changed your entire perspective of them. That's what hearing people's story, if you'll remember, they've not always been a vampire. That will be helpful to you. And the second thing is, is when we want to get real agitated with the vampires in our lives, get really kind of frustrated and irritated, if we can remember that we suck too, that that will help you. I'm not saying all the time, but there's at least been some season in your life when you were draining to somebody else, when somebody else walked away from you and they were exhausted. So if you could just remember, at least in my life, here's what I know, that the person who truly drains me more than anybody else, that could exhaust me more than anyone else, really is myself. It is the one who's looking back at me in the mirror. So if we could just kind of hang on to, and you suck too, that will give us the humility to walk walk with people in our life who sometimes are difficult. But having said all of that, this morning I want to give you some things, some principles to kind of help you in terms of the reality that they're still vampires. And I think we all agree vampire bites are not good. So we're just going to start with that assumption. 
we don't want to be bit by a vampire. So what are the boundaries that we can establish in our life that protect us from vampire bites? And that we move into those to protect ourselves even as we're still trying to love them sincerely. But here's what you need to know. In the end, you're going to have to figure this out and apply this on your own. I'm going to give you some principles. You'll see some text up on the back screen here to kind of give you some thoughts that I have that I'm bringing to the table this morning. But you will still have to take that and go, okay, now how do I take this and apply it to this person who sits next to me in the office that's driving me nuts or to my mother-in-law who won't stop hounding me about this. And so you'll just need wisdom in that. So if you don't mind, I just want to begin in prayer and ask the Spirit of God to be at work in your heart and your mind and your spirit in ways that I will have no idea what he's doing, but I just trust he will as we talk this morning. So Father, I just come and are grateful that you're uh, big enough to know all of our situations. And so I'll, I just trust that you will say things in hearts and minds you might use my words, but it will have an entirely different application and effect. And so we give you permission to do that. Whatever we need to hear in any particular way, let us hear it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now Jesus tells us in John 10, verse, here's Jesus' heart for you. Like, what he says is, listen, the thief, meaning Satan, he comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life, that you might have it to the full. So if you want to know what Jesus', what Jesus intent for your life is, it is abundant life. Now, I'm not saying prosperity on every front, but it's in the end you walk in your heart and your mind and your life with abundance. And the problem for us is when we have a lot of vampires in our life, it doesn't feel like we walk in abundance. What it feels like is I'm drained and exhausted and miserable all of the time. And I would say that's not necessarily Jesus' calling for you. So we need to figure out how to, see, I, we don't want that kind of uh, dualistic experience of, no, I love Jesus, I'm following Jesus, but at the same time, I'm completely miserable because the relationships I'm in are just sucking the life right out of me. And so when we think about vampires for just a moment, you, you know, I mean, I've not watched Twilight. I want to I get that out there right now. I've not seen any of the Twilight movies. <laughs> but based on other vampire movies, here's what I know. Vampires are vulnerable to things. Like there are just some contexts that vampires can't enter, and there are some things that vampires just can't be around. And so if you're asking me, how do you avoid being bit by a vampire? What I'd say is stay in those contexts in which vampires are especially vulnerable and can't enter into. Namely, here's one, sunlight, right? Like when a vampire hits sunlight, all of a sudden like their skin burns or whatever movie you're watching, whatever happens. But vampires are especially vulnerable to the sunlight. So if you want to ask me, how do I avoid a vampire bite, I would say... Don't go out at night and stay, in the, and stay in the sunlight. Stay somehow in that context and space where you're especially protected from the people around you who suck the life right out of you. And so Jesus will say this, and this is, of course, he uses it and applies it. He's not talking about vampires, you know, right? Jesus doesn't say about vampires. You know. John chapter 11, verse 9 and 10, Jesus says this. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble for they have no light. See, how do we walk in the light in our relationships with other people so that we prevent as much as we can the possibility of vampire bites? He'll say in the next chapter, chapter 12, verse 35, then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. He's referring to himself. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. So let me give you some context where I think you are especially, I don't know, I don't know about you, but my experience with people who drain me or that are exhausting or kind of feel like they could be a, a vampire in my life, if I peel it all back, here's why I recognize it's probably at the central core that is causing, like, oftentimes they're not trying to kill you. They're not trying to suck the blood out of you. They're not trying to exhaust you in life. Here's what I found. Most people, when they're in a context of anxiety and fear, do crazy things, right? 
Now, just think for a moment, the people that might come to your mind who exhaust you in life. Like, I would suggest that if you were to boil it all down, peel it all back, at the very heart, the reason why they're so exhausting and draining is because they're living their life and attached to you in a spirit of anxiety and fear. There's something in their life that's provoking anxiety and fear. And I'm telling you, when people get anxious and afraid, they do crazy things. And they do stupid things. And it's not, I mean, I'm saying just like out there, like I do crazy things and stupid things when I'm afraid and when I'm anxious. And the vampires in our life oftentimes are approaching us in that context, out of their anxiety and out of their fear. And I've seen good people, I'm talking people who love Jesus, that the moment they had enough fear or anxiety encounter their life, they make crazy decisions and do things that are so not like them, so to speak, in character. And so how do we maneuver through life in such a way where we avoid people who are in that drowning panic mode. I don't know if you know this, but if somebody is drowning, you can't just approach them head on. Like there's special techniques and tactics to rescue a drowning person because here's what a drowning person will do. And they don't mean to, but they're so anxious and so afraid and in such a high intense survival mode that when you approach them, what will the drowning person do to you? They will grab you and pull you down. Why? To pull themselves up. Are they trying to kill you? No, they're out of their mind. They're drowning. And there are people in our life who will do the same thing, that if you get close to them, they will grab you and pull you under. They might not be trying to suck the life out of you. They might not be trying to kill you. They're just trying to make it. They're trying to, there's such high intensity levels of fear and anxiety. They're doing anything they can in that survival mode. And so in that, how do we deal with people in anxiety and fear? I remember one time, yeah, this is a fear moment for me and doing crazy things. One time with Kelly and I, my wife, um, we were dating, and we were in Searcy, Arkansas, and I don't know what got in our mind. We were like on a double date with another couple. And we thought it would be kind of fun to kind of walk through one of the cemeteries at night at, in, in Searcy, Arkansas. So we're walking along. you got that kind of real spooky. And, but I'm trying to act like a man, real macho. And, you know, don't worry. I'll protect you from anything because you know, I'm trying to impress her because we're not married yet. And now I don't try to impress her at all. But. <laughs> so we're walking along. And I'm like, hey, you know, I'll protect you from whatever. And we come up to a tombstone. And there in front of it, I don't know what it is is a lame bird who's been perfectly still until we approached. And all of a sudden, as we got closer, this bird goes nuts, flapping its wings and squawking and going crazy. And that big, tough, macho Sam that was going to protect Kelly, here's what happens to Sam in this moment of the zombie that's coming out of the earth to kill us at this moment. I just instinctively step back behind Kelly and punch. And when I do, I punch Kelly. And how she married me after that, I have no idea. But you see what, I mean, it's just there's something instinctive that takes over. When fear hits, when an anxiety hits, something takes over in such a way you do crazy things. You're not quite as cool as you thought you were when you're with your girlfriend in the cemetery. So how do you protect yourself? Let me, let me give you this. I would say, you, you've heard this saying, but it's true in our lives. Good fences make good neighbors. You ever heard that saying? Good fences make good neighbors. One of the, one of the reasons why... We're being drained by those around us and exhausted when we, one of the reasons is we don't have good fences. We don't have good boundaries in our life that establishes the property line that says, this is where I go and beyond that is your property. The fence tells me what I am responsible for and then also what I'm not responsible for. And if the boundaries are not clear, there will always be confusion. That's why it's always important in relationship to be very clear about your boundaries. This is what I can do or cannot do because there's any confusion that will create uh, just anxiety and fear and problems in terms of exhaustion. If, for example, when Kelly and I bought our house that we live in now, we've got two privacy fences on our, in our backyard, and then the very back fence is just a chain-link fence. They were there before we bought the house. 
And uh, I noticed when we first moved in, the guy that lived right behind us across the chain link fence, he would mow his backyard, and then he'd open up the gate, and he'd come into my backyard, and then he'd start mowing my backyard, like strips, like a long ways. And I've got, I had a, used to, had a whole row of bushes, and he'd start trimming my bushes. And I remember thinking, is he just being nice? Like, is he just, is this just a nice guy? And I couldn't figure it out. And then, then it was a little upsetting that, well, why are you only going this for? Like, I mean, you're going to do the whole backyard for me if you're going to be, why just there? And what I came to discover is whoever put up that chain link fence did not put it at the proper boundary lines, at the property lines, that actually about 20 feet into my property was actually his property. But I couldn't tell because of the fence. And so when there's confusion, all of a sudden, all sorts of questions come up. And so I'm going to talk about establishing good fences, good fences with appropriate boundary lines that help us in dealing with people who are exhausting. And just by way of a recommendation, um, let me give you a book to rec- I want to recommend to you. And I would say, I've got a small list of books that I would say every single person should read this book. One of them is called Boundaries. It's by Henry Cloud and John Townsend, or the name of them. It is a fantastic book that I think will share a whole lot more in terms of boundaries and fences and how that looks in your life and what you could do. But I just want to offer that to you. I think it will help you in terms of boundaries. Uh, now, here's what I know, though. Uh, in your relationships, if you establish a fence... If you establish a boundary that says to somebody that you're connected to, this is mine and that is yours, right? When you begin to put up that, this is as far as I'm willing to go because this is my, what is mine, beyond that is yours, you could expect pushback. Now, sometimes it's from them that you'll get pushback. Sometimes it's from yourself that you'll get your own pushback, and especially if you're following Jesus, because this is what I've known, that people who follow Jesus can be very sensitive to the needs of others, and they want to be like Jesus, and they want to act like Jesus, and sometimes you interpret that as you have to say yes to everything. And I don't know if, and sometimes if you have that kind of internal critical spirit that you always feel like if you say no to anybody in their time of need or crisis or burden, then you're not really being a good Christian. And sometimes it's verbalized back. Like we get that in terms of uh, financial requests. People come and say, hey, I need help with this. or with And oftentimes we will. Like we help lots of people. But every once in a while you're like, yeah, we can't help you with this. Like this is a chronic issue that has no resolution by next month and you'll need another you know, million dollars. I mean, whatever it is. And, and like, so we can't help you. And you know what you, sometimes you get from that? You get, well, I thought you were Christians. Or I thought this was a church. Or I, thought, I mean, you get that pushback of if you really were like Jesus, then you would obviously help me in this. And how could you not help me do this? And what I want you to know is this. It is not unbiblical or unloving to establish boundaries or even to restrict relationships. Now, some of you just, you just need to hear that this morning because you have lived your life thinking, well, if I say no or if I restrict the relationship here, then I won't look like Jesus because Jesus would say yes, I think, and I'm supposed to just pour myself out all the time for everyone around me. But I want you to know, no, that's not true. And especially when it comes to vampires in your life, if you want to avoid getting bit and you don't go out in the dark, stay in the light, then you need to know that it is not unbiblical nor is it unloving to establish boundaries or to restrict relationships. In fact, Jesus does this. He draws boundaries. He doesn't just give himself to anyone who needs him, wants him. I mean, think about all the people around Jesus all the time who need healing, who want to hear his teachings, who want to be there when something phenomenal takes place. And so what it will tell us in Luke chapter 5, verse 15 is this. Verse 15 says, yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people, so picture him, not like one or two, like crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But then in verse 16, Jesus will draw a boundary. It will be a literal physical boundary where it says Jesus will withdraw to a lonely place so he could pray. What is that? That's a boundary. Jesus is establishing a boundary and he's he's restricting relationships. I can't be with you right now. Do they have need? Yes. Do they need healed? Yes. It's not like it's not even true. That's really what they need. But in this moment for Jesus, he knows 
He needs to now withdraw, be by himself, and spend time in prayer with his father. And could you imagine what a boundaryless Jesus would look like? Just, just every moment, I mean, he'd never get any sleep. Just every moment of the day, he would just be, you know, Jesus, I need you to do this. Jesus, I need that. I need heal for this. Jesus, I mean, what do you mean you're not going to heal me? I thought you were a Christian. You know, Jesus, like, I, I'm Jesus. Like, I mean, come on. Now, some of you have a vampire in your life that you need to be like Jesus and simply establish a fence that allows you to withdraw and to find some peace in God. Because sometimes the vampires in your life, when they're trying to suck energy from you, they need something from you because of their own fear and anxiety. I mean, if you let them, you know they'll, they'll consume hours and hours of your week, if you let them. And they don't mean to do that to you. It just naturally overflows in their fear and anxiety. And it's okay for you, and it's not unlike Jesus, for you to say, I only have 45 minutes on Thursday for you. I don't mind getting together. We could talk on the phone. We could go have coffee. But I've got 45. And what are you doing? You're establishing a boundary that allows you to walk away in such a way that you remain healthy. You're, still, you're not depleted. It's not like you're exhausted. And when that happens, people, at I mean, well, the alternative is you just walk away exhausted. And what happens after that? When you're depleted, you're always exhausted, you're frustrated. The thing that always comes out of that is resentment. Resentment that, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't, can't do this anymore. And that is exhausting. It's sort of like uh, doctors are good at this, even in ways that irritate us. Like when we need to get a hold of the doctor, but their office is closed. Or if you've got a counselor or therapist, you, need to, you really need to talk, and you call their office and they're closed. You get that voicemail, right? You know what it is? And in the end, here's what it always ends with. If this is an emergency, what do they tell you to do? Hang up and dial 911. And then you're like, come on. It's like the What About Bob movie. You ever see What About Bob? I need, I need, I need. I mean, that's what you feel like. But it's like, what's happening? The counselor or the doctor is establishing a boundary that says, I cannot be available to all of my clients 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is my boundary. These are my office hours. This is when I'm available. If you can't do this and this is an emergency, hang up and dial 911. Now, some of you need to do that relation with people in your life. This is when I'm open. This is when I can take care of you in this particular way. This is what's healthy. This is what's okay for me and my life, for my family, in my context. If this is an emergency, you need to hang up and dial 911, of which I am not. That's what some of you would do to be in a healthy place. Or sometimes it's even emotionally setting boundaries. Like here, Jesus withdraws to pray, spend time with his father. But sometimes he does it even emotionally. There's a story in John chapter 2 where uh, there's a festival going on at Passover in Jerusalem. It says this in verse 23. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and they believed in his name. But look at what it says in verse 24. This is interesting. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. Isn't that interesting? Like Jesus held back emotionally. He held back relationally because he knew what was in the heart of people. Like he knew, I can't entrust myself to the, these people because he knew it was in their heart. And so what you see here is sort of kind of emotional distancing, emotional boundary. So I'm telling you, in the end, you will not be unlike Jesus if you have seasons where you recognize this is not safe. I'll get bit if I enter into this. And so you need both a physical boundary and an emotional boundary. And there's lots of passages. I could go, I mean, we could spend just quite a bit of time going through different passages that kind of speak to this idea of boundaries and, yeah, this we can and this we can't relationally. Let me, Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. That's a boundary, right? Don't be here. Set a boundary here. Be on the other side of that. Where Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, don't give dogs what's sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they'll trample them under their feet and they'll turn and tear you to pieces. What does Jesus say? These are boundaries. Like there are people that are not safe. And if they look like this, don't give over to the most precious commodities you have, which for you might be your time and your energy and your resources. 
Titus 3.10, this is very clear, isn't it? Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time, and then what? Have nothing to do with them. Well, that's a boundary right there. Proverbs 22.3, the prudent see danger, and they take refuge. Others will say, and they hide from it. But the simple keep going and pay the penalty. Uh, there seemed to be a boundary issue in the church in Thessalonica. It seemed to be with, like, working and food and kind of being idle or busy bodies. And so Paul has, to, Paul has to come in and give them, let me establish the boundaries of how we're going to relate to one another. He says this, this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. That's a boundary. For we yourselves know how, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because uh, we don't have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we sh- we gave you this rule: the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy; they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food that they eat. See, that, that's a boundary. And for some of you, you just might need this morning permission to know it's okay. Like when your adult daughter calls and says, I need another $750 and you know it's for drugs, it is not being more Christ-like to hand it over. Or when your child wants to move back into the house, and I'm not saying you can't let them move back in the house, but what I'm saying is, it's not unchristlike if you recognize that your child has no ambitions, no job, no plan, no exit strategy to say, I'm not sure this is the best thing for you or for I, and you avoid a vampire bite. It's okay to establish the boundaries that lets the phone call go on to voicemail, or to be able to say, I'm sorry, you can't borrow my car because I really do need it that day, and to realize that you can't help everybody. Oh, and sometimes even in the Gospels you get glimpses of, you were created just with just 24 hours in a day. And you only get seven days in a week. And each of you only have a certain amount of energy and a certain amount of resources, and it's finite. We just can't be available to everyone. So the question is, what do we allow God to use in us in the kingdom work in such a way that remains healthy and we get to keep walking an abundant life, even if others don't recognize this is what God has given me and not anymore? There's a story in the Gospels in John chapter 5 I think is interesting. It's a story about a pool that Jesus goes and visits. And the Bible says that there's sick people all around this pool. It begins in verse 1. It says that sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. And now they're in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five co- uh, covered colonnades. Then verse 3 gives us a scene here. Here is a great number of disabled people who used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. So picture in your mind what this looks like. A pool, and everyone who's sick is all around it. Blind people, lame people, all just paralyzed people, like all around this pool. Now, there was a tradition that some of the translations will tell us in verse 4, that the tradition is that an angel would stir the water of the pool, and the first one in gets healed, right? Which is great, unless you're paralyzed, because how are you going to get in, right? At least the blind, I'll just point me in the right direction, I'm running. I mean, but, and so that was the tradition. And so Jesus encounters a guy here, it says next, in verse, th- uh, verse 5, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years, meaning he can't walk. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, here's where I go, hold the phone, Jesus. Seriously? Really? This man has not been able to walk for 38 years, and Jesus' question is, do you want to get well? What do you mean, do you want to get well? Of course you want to get well, right? 
But then when you start to really think about it, you begin to realize, oh no, actually I've had lots of pastoral experiences of people who you would think wanted to get well and to be over this, but in their heart of hearts really didn't want to get well. Because what happens is for 38 years, that seals your identity. That's how you think of yourself. That's how everybody views you. I'm an infant. I've been this way for 38 years. And you know what life looks like in this. You know what to do in this situation and in this context. You know how you're going to try to make a living, so to speak, whatever little you can in this particular way. And you don't know what's on the other side. And not everybody is interested on the other side simply because of fear. And what happens is people get very comfortable with their dysfunctions. And people can be very, uh, right, especially when identity gets attached to it, they become so used to that particular life that really in their heart of hearts, they don't want to get well. Which I think this will help you in terms of the vampires in your life to know this. This will help you, I think, in ministry is to know this, that you can't help someone who needs help. You can only help someone who wants help. And especially if you have any codependency in you, which, come on, some of us do, you kind of desire to want to rescue somebody, want to come in and save somebody, kind of want to keep somebody from doing those sorts of things, I just want you to, this will save you a lot of harm in terms of vampire bites. If you could know, listen, you can't help somebody who needs help. That's not the criteria. You can only help somebody who wants help. And what we see back in verse 6 is a boundary question that Jesus is laying out here to this man who's been an invalid for 38 years. Are you sure you want to be made well? You sure you want this? It's going to change your whole life. Everything's going to be different. People relate to you different. You'll relate to others differently. Your whole identity will shift in this moment. Are you sure this is what you really want? Verse 7, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up and pick up your mat and walk. And at once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. And the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And then there's a controversy with the Jewish leaders about it being a Sabbath. And, and Jesus took off in the crowd, those sorts of things. But here's what's interesting to me. The story ends here. Like, he heals this one man. And then, that's it. Jesus moves on. But what's interesting to me in the story is, who's all around the pool? There are a ton of sick people around the pool. People who are blind. People who are lame. People who are paralyzed. And Jesus walks in and he does what? Why would Jesus be around that many sick people who need him, who need his healing power, who could be rescued from this and from that and from this disorder and from this dysfunction and from this disease and from this condition, yet Jesus walks in and he heals only one? Why would Jesus heal only one? And here's the answer. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't get it. And in the end, my best guess is... I don't know, I guess for whatever reason, on that particular day, at that particular pool, with those particular people, his father was interested in healing one person. And I don't know why that is. There's still great mystery to the sovereignty of God and how he makes those sorts of decisions and choices and those sorts of things. But what I know is, from the gospel account from John, that Jesus only does what he sees his father doing. And he will only say what his father gives him to say. And for whatever reason, if he was, dis if he was codependent, boy, Jesus has been all over the place. And you... And you, and you, but he's not codependent. He's listening to the voice of his father and the lead of his father. And for whatever reason, his father told him on this particular occasion, that man laying right there has been there for 38 years, and I want you to go heal him. And what you need to do in your life is to figure out who is God calling you to tomorrow. Because you could be quickly overwhelmed by all of your coworkers and your extended family members and all of your friends and all of your neighbors. Really, by the end of the day tomorrow, you could have 25 people who need something from you to help them in some particular way. But what you need to be in tune to and hear is the voice of your father and the will of your father for you tomorrow to know this I can do and this I cannot do. 
And so you see, even the ministry of Jesus, he doesn't just go around in some sort of codependent manner without any boundaries or any offenses to, oh, I just got to help everybody. I mean, no, he knows this is what God has called me to do and will help us, I think, in our ministry and in our life to avoid bites from vampires to know those sorts of things. So I end that with just simply saying it is not unbiblical and it's not unloving to establish boundaries or even to restrict relations. Let me give you something else. It's also for that you know that you what you are responsible to, but what you're not responsible for. You may be responsible to, but you are never responsible for. Let me, let me tell you this. There's only one person on this planet that I am responsible for. You know who that is? Me. And that's it. I got three kids who I love. And I'm responsible to my three kids, but I'm not responsible for my three kids. See, that's, that's when, we sh- when we lose that perspective and we shift and we become responsible for other people, we are vulnerable to vampire bites. And so you'll have to think this through your own life and what this might look like in your life. But I am only responsible for my thoughts and not yours. I am only responsible for my emotions and I can't be responsible for yours. I am only responsible for my feelings or my reactions or my behaviors and my choices. And relationships become vulnerable into a life-sucking vampire when we cross that line or that boundary and we become responsible for the thoughts of others and the emotions of others and the feelings and reactions of others. And sometimes you can see it on very extreme abusive scales. And you see it like this where uh, the husband uh, is, is angry and he's upset by something that the wife did. And so he goes into this violent rage and he hits her. And then about an hour later he comes back and he says, you know, I'm sorry I hit you, but you made me because of men's fill in the blank. You ever hear those stories where he comes back in, the abuser comes back in, and you know, I'm sorry I hit you, but you know, really, you're the one who made me do it. Oh, no, you're, you are only responsible for yourself. You see, that wife, if she owns that, if she says, I am responsible for his behavior and his reactions and his, and his thoughts, and his, that what happens is she will begin to say, I did this on purpose. That's what happened. She just crossed over that boundary got bit by a vampire. And you know how many people live their lives bit by that vampire? to believe that they really are responsible for somebody else's thoughts or behavior or actions. No, no. You are only responsible for you. And parents, we cross this line often, and it has serious ramifications when we forget that, no, I'm responsible, I'm responsible to my kids to, to make sure they have what they need in life in terms of the basics of life. I'm responsible to love them, to care for them, to discipline them, but in the end, I'm not responsible I'm for my children. That's on them. And a lot of parents, when they, when that, I've got a friend, Hal Runkle is his name. He wrote a book called Screen Free Parenting, which I highly recommend if you want. I mean, if you're here, <laughs> Screen Free Parenting might be for you. And he says this in the book. He says, it gets boiled down to our own anxiety and fear about crossing over and thinking we're supposed to for our kids. So what happens is when your kid misbehaves or makes bad choices, when we think we're supposed to for them, the first thing that comes to our mind is, what are people going to think about me as a mom? I'm a complete failure as a mother. And then we kind of have all that guilt and all that shame. And out of that comes angry outbursts and angry reactions and kind of, ah, I mean, like, but he says, you will be scream free if you can get to the place where you're, no, no, that's on you. And I love you. And I'm responsible to you, but I'm not responsible for you. So if you go to jail, Isaac, that's on you. And then in that, we try to jump in real quick and fix and take on what isn't ours or try to prevent even the biblical principle of sowing and reaping. That happens all the time. It's because we forgot, oh, no, I'm only responsible for me and not for anyone else. Uh, Paul will say this in Galatians. I think you'll see this principle here in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. He'll say in verse 1, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. 
but watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Verse 2 and this, verse 2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So I think this speaks the language of I'm responsible to. I've got responsibility to you as my brothers and sisters in Christ. But this is what goes on. He says this. If anyone thinks they are something when they are nothing, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to anyone else. Verse 5. For each one should carry their own load. And see, so when you contrast verse 2 with verse 5, of, no, I mean, we, the, what, we carry each other's burdens. But in verse 5, but each one should carry their own load. I think you see a picture of being responsible to, but I'm not responsible for. Let me give you one other thing I think is important in terms of thinking through. How do we avoid vampire bites? One is you should pursue freedom before service. Pursue freedom before service. What I mean by this is oftentimes we get trapped into doing something for others that we don't really want to do. Right, you ever been in that situation where somebody needed something, they asked you for it, and everything in you was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go. I don't want to give you this. And, but you kind of did it anyhow. And then you have that gross feeling afterwards and you're just frustrated. You kind of start to have those brewing resentments take place. That's never a good place to be and it will drain the life right out of you. It will suck the life right out of you. And so that's why you always want to pursue freedom even before service. What that means is that what you extend to others is free. It's free from your own heart and your own thinking. Like you want to. Like it is, it is my pleasure and joy to do this. I want to do this. Not in an obligation way, not a, oh, I have to. But there's something inside of me that's free, that's choosing to move. The, it, Paul will use the analogy in terms of even what we give to the church. He'll say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. How do we live our lives with people around us where when they need something, when we're able to give it to them, it's coming from a place of cheer and joy and desire, not a place of compulsion or obligation because that looks totally different. And when it comes all the time out of obligation, resentment is sure to follow. And you'll see this in your families, right? When your parents get older and you've got several siblings, but one takes care of the parents more than the others, what normally breaks out? That, after a while, if it's not really coming from that free place, that one sibling is like... I don't get any help from my, from my brothers and sisters. They're kind of antagonistic. And it kind of gets, there's conflict, those sorts of things. That's a sign. That resentment is a sign. This is not coming from a free place. And you'll find, you'll find that in other places in life, too, where if it's not coming from a, you'll see that in the Bible, where remember when Jesus comes to uh, Larry, uh, Lazarus? I just said Larry. It's Lazarus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, his best friends called him Larry. Uh, Mary and Martha, right? And so he's at, he's at uh, Mary and Martha, and Martha's what? She's in the kitchen cooking. And what's Mary doing? She's sitting listening to Jesus. Jesus is here. And Martha's getting so frustrated. She gets so resentful. She finally cries out from the kitchen, Jesus, would you make Mary come in here and help me? I mean, what's happening? It's resentment. Like, no, you should be, that's got to be a place of freedom. Like, you, you, from cheer, from joy, this is what you're doing so that those seeds of resentment don't take place. And so the best trick that you can have, the best way you can handle that then is, is to have the ability to say no and to perfect it. Perfect the art of saying no. This is easier for some of you. Some of you are really good at it. Hey, would you like no? Kind of about no. You want to go out? No. I mean, but others of you are not good at this. And you know, right? You know about yourself well enough to know, no, I have a hard time saying no. Like if somebody asks me, even though I'm crazy busy, I've got no time whatsoever, I'll figure out how to fit it in because I just can't say no. What I would suggest is you should learn the ability, the fine art of graciously, lovingly, but firmly saying no. I've seen this model several times. There used to be, uh, uh, she's passed away, but growing up here, there's a woman named Ruth Sullivan that came to this church. Her ward, her, her husband was an elder here. 
And I don't remember why this sticks out in my mind, but I remember on many occasions as a kid watching her interaction with other people, asking her for things, and her being just so kind and gentle, but very firmly just like, no. Like, if Ruth didn't want to do it, Ruth wasn't going to do it. And she had just a way of saying it in such a way that's like, oh, look at that. I mean, she was free. And everyone respected it. Like, she had very clear boundaries. I had a good friend who worked here on staff. Chris Miller was his name. And uh, when they moved to South Bend, his mother moved here to South Bend, too. But his mother had severe mental health issues, like bad. And I remember watching Chris interact with his mother and how, uh, how often he would say no to her and put boundaries around her. That felt weird to me. Like, when I first saw it, it was like, dude, that's your mom. Like, come on. Like, you got to. And then what I came to, to discover and realize just in relationship with him was what happens when those boundaries aren't there to his marriage and to his family and to his house. And they were all necessary. And he just, he had a way of trying to be, it was very firm, but it was very gracious to say, I love you, mom. And, and this is the fence that says, and everything else was a kind and loving, but firm, no. Now, sometimes that can be excruciating to you because there's fear. Of, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Or what if they leave me? Like, what if they abandon me? What if they're angry, right? Who wants somebody to be angry? No. And then the anger. What I'd say is others' anger should not be a cue for you to do anything. And if you find other people's anger does cause you to shift your boundaries, what that might mean is that there's still an angry person in your head that you still fear, and you need to work that out. Sometimes it's not even with a verbal no. Sometimes a no takes place in terms of the dynamics of a relationship. Sometimes in a relationship, you just need to opt out of the way things always work. And I don't know if you know what I mean by that, but what I've discovered is relationships are very predictable. Like over time, there is a dynamic that takes place in a relationship that's very consistent and very predictable, and sometimes it's unhealthy and dysfunctional. And so what happens is the husband A does this, wife B reacts like this, and it's very predictable, and then the husband comes back and responds to her reaction in this particular manner. It's just a big cycle, and it happens over and over and over again. And what happens in the marriage is when you can't get over it, that's when you got to go see a counselor who can come in and say, okay, we got to start a new pattern. Like, when he does this, you see how this isn't working because he just responds like this? we got to fix this, right? You're not going to be able to fix him. What's your new reaction response going to be? And what I mean by the fine art of saying no, sometimes not a verbal no, sometimes just saying, I'm not going to respond like this anymore because it's keeping us in an unhealthy pattern that you're just sucking the life right out of me. So if you want to treat me like that and you want to use those words in anger towards me, you are free to do that, but I will not respond in kind anymore and I won't remain in this house any longer. And it's a brand new no and a new pattern of behavior that cuts off. I will no longer be exhausted in my life because of your dysfunction. You have to think through your own life, who's that and what that might look like for you. But in the end, you should expect some anger. You should expect some guilty messages, right? I mean, when you say to the mother-in-law, she wants you to come to Thanksgiving dinner and you're like... I can't make it this year. We just, I mean, is this how it's going to work? And what does she do? This might be my last year I'm alive. And you get put that guilty messages on you. I mean, often you go back to, all right, we'll be there. No, no, just affirm. No, not anymore. Like, I love you, Mom, but on, we cannot make it this year. We will be there next year. Expect guilty messages, some con consequences and counter moves, maybe even blamers in your life. How could you do this to me? And they act like you're killing them. You're like, really? I can't meet you for coffee and I'm killing you? I mean, people act like that. But in order to do this well, you'll need the support of others and God. I mean, if you're going to do this well, this microphone, i got boundary issues with microphones. You're going to need the support of others and God to have healthy boundaries, to protect you from those vampires, to allow you to remain in the light and not to go out into the vulnerability of the darkness. My prayer for you is that God will give you wisdom 
as you construct or enforce these boundaries, and that they might in the end protect the abundant life that Jesus wants to give to you in as you follow Jesus. Now, next week, I'm going to tell you where we're going. Next week, we're going to talk about garlic, crucifixes, and holy water when you need to kill a vampire. And there are two major ways I want to talk about where that happens, but sometimes in life, you know it's time to go ahead and put a stake in the heart. And I want to tell you what that looks like and should look like, and so that's where we'll head next week. But uh, let's just pray and ask God to give us wisdom again in this. Father, so we lift this up to you, and I pray, Father, these words that I've spoken out loud, that you will take them and use them in a way that will provide relief and health to those who might need it. And in the end, that we get to walk in the abundant life your son promises. In Jesus' name.